On November the 20th in 1839, John Williams and James Harris of the London Missionary Society arrived on the island of Aromanga in the New Hebrides, a chain of islands in the South Pacific. They had come to make the name of Christ known. And within minutes of their arrival, they were killed and eaten by cannibals. Roughly 20 years later, and at the age of 33, John Patton purposed to leave his church and to take his wife to the New Hebrides for the same purpose, to make the name of Christ known. Unsurprisingly, he was met with opposition to such a plan from within his own church. A gentleman within his congregation, Mr. Dixon, who was in fact an elder, exclaimed, the cannibals, the cannibals will eat you. How should John Patton respond? How could he respond? God had put a gospel passion in his heart to make the name of Christ known to that place. This is how he responded to Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. More than a clever response, which it certainly was, John Patton's response revealed his certainty. It revealed his certainty that Jesus is not only worth living for, but that he is also worth dying for. John Patton's aim in life was not to hold off the grave, but to honor the name of the Lord Jesus. What about you? What is your aim in life? What are you passionate about? Who or what do you want to live for? Who or what are you willing to die for? Is it the Lord Jesus? Do you have such a regard for Christ that you are ready and resolved to live and to die for Him? This morning, as we turn to study God's Word together, this is what we see in the Apostle Paul. He is ready to live and die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's my prayer that our time together in God's Word this morning might evoke the same regard for the Lord Jesus. I pray that we might have the same gospel passion that we find in the Apostle Paul here in Acts 21. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 21. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 to 17. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 930. The book of Acts, as you know by now, Lord willing, is uh, the aim is to chronicle the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. The goal of the book is to see the message of salvation in King Jesus carried to the ends of the earth. And Jesus told His disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that He intended them to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And in our study through the book of Acts, we've basically finished up Paul's third missionary journey. And since Acts chapter 19, we have been put on notice that Paul feels pressed in his spirit to return to Jerusalem and eventually on to Rome. And in fact, if you're willing, before we read 21, our text, I want us to take a journey 
through chapters 19 and 20, where we see these statements about Paul's desire to go to Jerusalem. So if you can keep one finger in Acts 21, turn back to chapter 19, verse 21. Chapter 19, verse 21. When you get there, take a look at what Luke says. We read these words in Acts 19, 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia and to go on to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, skip ahead one chapter to Acts chapter 20, find verse 16. Look at how Paul describes, sorry, look at how Luke describes Paul's intentions there. Verse 16 of Acts 20. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now one more text. Ahead to verses 22 and 23 of that same chapter. Acts 22 and 23 of, of chapter 20. Paul tells us just how high the stakes are in his trip to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20 verses 22 and 23. We read this. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to be there, except... That the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now our text this morning, it concludes with Paul finally landing in Jerusalem. But along the way, Luke points out places and people, fellow believers, who love Paul. Luke, he represents the prophecies of Paul's coming persecution and suffering. And still, Paul's passion is to go and plant his feet in Jerusalem. So this morning, we'll unpack Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 17, under three headings. I think there's an outline provided for you there in the bulletin, but here are the three major headings. Gospel places, gospel people, and gospel passion. For this is the main idea of Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. Gospel passion carries the name of Jesus to people and places despite pain, prison, or the possibility of being put in the grave. See if you can spot that truth for yourself in Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. Follow along now as I read. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemos and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days... A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belts and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we 
and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason, of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Gospel passion carries the name of Jesus to people and places despite pain, prison, or the possibility of being put in the grave. Did you see it in the text? Well, you might not have seen all of that, but you no doubt saw all of the places that Luke mentioned, right? So let's consider our first point, gospel places. As we thought about a few weeks ago, we are in a portion of the book of Acts that has travelogue after travelogue. And travelogues can be tough on Bible reading, can't they? Um, Many of you may do some kind of read-through-the-year Bible reading plan, and you come to a text like this, and your eyes kind of glaze over as you go from place to place, thinking, what on earth does this have for me spiritually? How How does this help my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? After all, we see these different places, at least seven of them in our text. Oh, the places that Paul will go, won't he? But why? Right? How is this useful to any of us spiritually? We know that Paul's traveling to Jerusalem. He's got to go through various places to get there. But why does Luke have to record it in such detail? Let me give you at least two reasons. I'm sure there are more, but two will do. Here's reason number one. Luke is giving us a faithful history of the gospel's advance. The author of Acts has told us from the very beginning, from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that the goal of this book is to chronicle the gospel's advance across the known world. And in some respects, as readers, uh, we should expect travelogues. We we should expect these various places. And we should also appreciate the importance of an accurate account of history. A, A faithful approach to history is to recount its details, no matter how gloomy, gory, or glorious they may be. All of these places in Acts 21 show us the trustworthiness of Luke's account. Luke has clearly kept notes on dates and times and travel routes. He mentioned even passing Cyprus on the left. Did you notice all the we language throughout these verses? There are more than 20 uses of the word we in these verses. And that's not even counting the word us. Luke was there. He was an eyewitness to these events. He was there in those places. This makes him a reliable resource, a reliable source, and he clearly has reliable records too. We should appreciate all of these places because they're evidence of a faithful history, and this encourages and furthers our confidence in the Bible's trustworthiness. There's another reason why this travelogue should thrill us. Yes, thrill us, because it reveals that we have a faithful king. The Lord Jesus told us that the apostles, by the power of His Holy Spirit, would carry His good news to the ends of the earth. And what these verses are showing us is that Jesus has established embassies of heaven, churches, in these places on His planet. What does Paul do on several occasions when he stops? He meets with believers. 
In verse 4, he meets with the disciples in Tyre. In verse 7, he's greeted by the brothers in Ptolemas. In verses 18 to, in 8 to 14, Paul spends time with the believers in Caesarea. And of course, in verse 17, he meets the brothers there in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, these 17 verses, alongside Paul's travels, Luke has recounted the faithfulness of our king. These cities have become, by God's grace, outposts and embassies of the kingdom of heaven. These cities have become gospel places where believers not only warmly welcome Paul, but more importantly, worship the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. This travelogue is a chronicle of the gospel's conquest among the nations. What a wonderful record of God's saving power through our faithful king. Beloved, Bible history like this should make us happy. It reminds us that God is at work in the world. And it gives us hope that the place that we are living in is a gospel place too. Because gospel people are present. So let's turn and look at our second point. Gospel people. Let's look at these people who we find in these various places. You see there in verse 1 of the chapter, Paul parts from the Ephesian elders. This meeting between Paul and the Ephesian elders, you'll recall, took place at Miletus. For now, I, I simply want to point out that the parting between these two was painful. Underneath that phrase you see there, when we had parted, is the idea that they had torn themselves away from one another. Where the gospel is loved and lived out, the souls of God's people will be necessarily knit together so that when there's a parting, there, there's, there's a tearing of sorts. Parting is painful among a gospel people because they're marked by love. We see the same love developed among the people in Tyre there in verses 4 to 6. You notice there that Paul was only there for seven days. But a lot can happen in seven days when God's people devote themselves to fellowship and the teaching of God's word. At the end of verse 4, we're told there that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. As we read these words, we need to remember those passages that we read at the beginning of this sermon. In Acts 19 and 20, where Paul had been impelled and compelled by the Holy Spirit to go on to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. He told the Ephesian elders, remember, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await him. So we, we shouldn't be surprised if the Holy Spirit testifies to Paul the same things there in Tyre. And then he shared his future with them. And this, of course, prompts them to beg Paul not to go on. What, what should we make of this? It cannot be that the Holy Spirit is sending mixed messages. Now, I think the best way of understanding what's going on here among these gospel people in Tyre is that they draw the wrong conclusion from the Spirit's prediction and the illumination of Paul's future. You see, the, the Spirit's prediction is not a prohibition for Paul. Rather, it's a preparation for Paul as he goes on to carry on the Lord's will. And this was hard, I think, for the believers of Tyre to understand. And two things jump out to me about these gospel people in Tyre that, that I want you to see. Did you notice the reference to the wives and children who gathered on that beach to pray for Paul as he departed? Did you notice how they kneeled down, visibly lowering themselves in humble submission to God's providence to send Paul on to Jerusalem? They are accepting Paul's passion and purpose. The men are leading their wives and their children to see this great missionary off. It's as if these husbands are saying to their wives, 
My dear, I want you to get a good look at this man. He is obeying the Lord Jesus at all costs. And we need to pray for him. And when my day comes, my dear, I need you to pray for me. I need you to steal my spine so that I walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and am not thrown off the path, just like Paul. Brothers, you may need to prepare your wives someday for your path of obedience, for whatever the Lord may call you to. And notice, it seems to me, that these men are also commending courageous service to their children too. Perhaps these fathers are saying to their children, do you see Paul? He is a servant of the Lord. He will follow Jesus no matter the cost. I want you to know, child, that Jesus is worth everything you have and are. My dear son, my precious daughter, Jesus gave his life for sinners like us. And we, we have the joy of giving our lives to Jesus, to serve him. So learn from Paul. Leave all for the sake of following Jesus. Brothers, teach your families. Teach those under your care about the greatness of Christ, the worth of Christ. Yes, have them at baptismal testimonies. Look, you see that there? He is identifying with Jesus. He is laying his life down as Jesus laid his life down for him. And he is taking it up to live and serve the risen Jesus. You should do that with your life. You should die to yourself and to your flesh and give yourself into the service of Jesus. Have them at baptismal testimonies. Have them at missionary reports. Teach them about this is someone who is giving their life to make Christ known. Lead them to be present and engaged and talk to them about the joy and the honor of serving Jesus. In the end, these gospel people entire entrust Paul to the hands of the Lord, don't they? When they bow down on the beach and pray for him and his companions. Notice this. Gospel people pray and push God's servants out to do God's will. Gospel people hospitably host fellow believers and servants of the Lord. That's what we see in verse 7. We see it really all along the way of Paul's trip. Hospitality is mentioned in verses 4, 8, and 16. But we also see it there in Ptolemos, when we're told that Paul stayed with the brothers for one day. Paul was there only one day. But I think this is what makes their hospitality all the more striking, at least in my mind. I mean, it was impromptu hospitality. What could they do? Uh, they had to host Paul, no matter the condition of their home. And even if they had not gone to the grocery store, it was not as if they could turn the Apostle Paul away, was it? Beloved, it is more important to have your heart prepared to receive guests than it is to have your house prepared. We cannot allow the tidiness of our houses to stand in the way of preventing God's people from coming over the threshold. In truth, your brothers and sisters would probably be delighted if your home was just a little disheveled when they came in. Oh, they're human too. They, they have lots on their plate too. They, they can't possibly clean up every sock or every speck of dust. No, your brothers and sisters uh, might just be quietly delighted that you're just as normal as them. As I said, it's more important to have your heart prepared to receive guests than it is to have your house prepared. Your heart attitude should be one that is ready to welcome God's people and strangers in at a moment. Gospel people, we see from Caesarea, are also spirit-filled. But again, they should not stand in the way of God's servants. You see there in verses 8 to 12, in verse 8 there we meet Philip once again. 
Philip. He was a deacon at the church in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 6. That's why he's referred to as one of the seven. He's also called an evangelist here because he went and, and after the persecution arose in, in Jerusalem, he went out and he evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch and others at the end of the latter half of Acts chapter 8. And now it appears that Philip, he's settled down here in Caesarea with his family. We're told he has four daughters who prophesy. And we're, we're told two important things about Philip's daughters. And that is one, that they were unmarried or virgins, as some translations put it. And two, that they, that they prophesied. That is, they were pious and faithful to the Lord, and that they were used of the Lord. And here, what Luke is subtly communicating to us is that the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, we read these words. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What we're seeing here in Acts is that the spirit of the Lord is being poured out on a church that actually is probably largely Gentile. After all, this is where Peter saw the Roman soldier Cornelius and his household converted. Luke's focus, however, is not on the prophesying of Philip's four daughters, but on the prophecy of Agabus. We've met Agabus before in the book of Acts, if you recall, from Acts chapter 11. Verse 28, he faithfully predicted that there would be a great famine over the world. And Agabus' prophecy came true. So we know him to be an authorized prophet, a reliable prophet of God. Now this prophecy concerning Paul's future was sure to come true. And here, Agabus, he enacts, doesn't he? He, he? he acts out what will happen to Paul. He acts out the insight that the Lord has given to him. And actually, this is similar to what we see from some Old Testament prophets like Ahijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. At different points in their ministry, they were charged by God to enact visible pictures of the prophetic future. So, like the gospel people in Tyre, what we see here is the gospel people in Caesarea, they plead with Paul not to go. Again, what they don't understand is that the Spirit's prediction of Paul's future was not a prohibition but preparation for Paul. We, we can understand why they might not want Paul to go after all. He's been greatly used by God among the, Jew, the Jews and among the Gentiles. Why choose suffering when you can choose an ongoing fruitful ministry, especially among the Gentiles? It's a powerful plea. And notice that Luke and Paul's other traveling companions this time joined in the plea. Did you see that there in verse 12? Acts chapter 21, verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Sometimes, it's actually believers who stand in the way of carrying out the mission of the Lord Jesus. Think back to John Patton, who was preparing to go and minister among the cannibals in the New Hebrides. You heard of an elder in his congregation who urged him not to go. But actually, one of his professors of divinity also urged him not to go. And actually, his professor really had this same argument that is likely taking place here in Acts. His professor argued that he was useful to his present church and that he would be throwing his life away among the cannibals. It's a powerful argument, is it not? You're doing great work. Why throw it all away? Why throw away safety and security? As one brother pointed out to me, the truth is, is that safety and security can never come before the mission. If safety and security come first, then the mission will never advance. What if Jesus never went to Jerusalem because the 
opposition that he faced upon the road. It, it wasn't safe. They, they wanted to kill him. No, gospel passion to execute the mission must come before safety and security. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, beware of the idols of comfort and ease and the idols of safety and security. These gospel people, they love Paul. And they love the gospel, no doubt. But sometimes, God's providence moves contrary to worldly wisdom. As we'll see shortly, this opposition to Paul only strengthens his gospel passion. But before we do, we need to meet one more gospel person in our text. I wonder if you noticed him in verse 16, Nason. You see what Luke tells us about Nason in verse 16? And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So as they're approaching Jerusalem, they come to lodge at Nason's house. Perhaps he's in Jerusalem or somewhere on the outskirts. But Luke here is sure to note that Nason is an early disciple. Most commentators suggest that this means that Nason might have been a follower of Jesus before his death and resurrection. Or that he was among the first converts among those in Jerusalem. Either way, Luke is likely indicating one of his sources for the history of Jesus and the church. Luke has told us that he's a careful historian. In his gospel, Luke's gospel, he opened by saying that his source material for his work comes from eyewitnesses of Jesus and the apostles of Jesus. Nason is probably one of those sources. He's a, a gospel person, perhaps even quite literally providing information for Luke in the writing of his gospel. Well, gospel people have tried to dissuade Paul from traveling on to Jerusalem. But verses 13 and 14 announce Paul's gospel passion. That's our third point. Gospel passion. Here we see especially clearly that gospel passion carries the name of Jesus to people and places despite pain, prison, or the possibility of being put in the grave. As we prepare to see this in the text, read again Acts chapter 21, verses 13 and 14. Remembering that Paul has just been begged not to go to Jerusalem. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. We see God, that Paul's gospel passion in his loving rebuke of these believers. That phrase, breaking my heart, carries with it the idea that Paul's heart is on the verge of being broken into pieces. This is not easy for Paul. He, he loves them. And their argument is somewhat compelling to him. And yet... His heart is about to break apart. His passion, even though their love is powerful, his passion to obey the Lord Jesus and carry forward his gospel is still yet more powerful. In a certain sense, this scene at Caesarea ought to remind us of another scene at another Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. We read about it in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. It was there that the Apostle Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ the Son of the living God. And immediately following that confession, Mark tells us this, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 
In other words, after Peter just made this great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, yes, boys, I'm headed on to Jerusalem to die. And what does Peter do? Remember how Peter responds? No, you're not, Lord. Peter rebukes Jesus. Only then for Jesus to turn around and rebuke Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. And just like Jesus had to lovingly rebuke Peter, so Paul had to lovingly rebuke these believers. He had to go. He had to go to Jerusalem. Just as Jesus couldn't get off the path, neither could Paul. And here's a reality that we need to be ready to face. I mentioned it once before, but it bears repeating. Sometimes opposition to gospel passion might come from those who are closest to you or from those who you love the most. Parents, would you give up your children to Jesus and a gospel passion to make him known around the world? Last Sunday night, we prayed that the Lord would raise up pastors and missionaries from our congregation. What if the Lord answered our prayers? What if the Lord Jesus put a gospel passion in the hearts of our children? Could we give them up? Moms and dads, if and when the time comes, put your kids into the hands of the Lord Jesus. They were there all along anyway. Do what John Patton's parents did. When John Patton turned to his parents and talked them through about the opposition he was facing, about going on this mission field, this is what his parents said to him. Heretofore we fear to bias you, but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you have been led. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. When you were given to us, we laid you upon the altar, our firstborn, to be consecrated. If God saw fit as a missionary of the cross, and it has been our constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all of our heart that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. John Patton's parents had a gospel passion in which they were willing to part with their firstborn because God had given them His Son. They could give Him their Son. In such a testimony, and even Paul's words, we may need to hear a rebuke. Until Christ is large in our hearts, our gifts toward Him will be little. Christ is large in Paul's heart. So he lovingly rebukes these dear saints. And he tells them that he's ready. Did you see that in verse 13? Paul says, I am ready. Do we have a spirit of readiness to do the Lord's will? Have we placed ourselves into the hands of the Lord? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, we read this. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the calling that the Lord Jesus laid upon his disciples. That we would be ready and willing to take up our cross and follow him. 
That's what Paul is doing as he marches toward Jerusalem. Now there is something unrepeatable, right, about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And even Paul's journey to Jerusalem. For Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. We, we can't do that. Paul is going to Jerusalem to suffer, to be persecuted, because the Spirit prompted him. And we've been prepared in the book of Acts that Paul is actually going to also testify before kings. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, we learn that Paul would be God's chosen servant to carry Jesus' name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul, in the book of Acts, has yet to stand before kings. And this road to Jerusalem would be used of God to bring about those purposes. So Jesus and Paul's journey are, are both, in a sense, unrepeatable. They're both doing something in, unique in the course of redemptive history. And still, their ready and unyielding obedience to the will of God is a pattern for us to follow. We should be ready to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus. Paul was not only ready, but we see he is resolved to follow Jesus come what may. So far, these dear saints in Caesarea had only heard of the possibility of prison. But notice that Paul ups the ante. He is ready and resolved to endure more than prison. This is what we read earlier from the service in Daniel chapter 3, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were ready and resolved to worship and serve the one true and living God if it cost them their lives. While death may not be required of every Christian in the service of Christ, every Christian must be prepared to die in the service of Christ. When you think of the likes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of Paul, of John Patton, what is it that they have in common? You ever wondered, how is it that in their soul they're, they're willing to go this route for the Lord Jesus? What motivates this earnest and zealous gospel passion? What would cultivate the same passion in you? What could inflame your heart to be ready to serve Christ and resolve to suffer for Christ? It can only be the same thing that motivated Paul. You see what motivated Paul there in verse 13? Do you see what made Paul ready to be imprisoned and even to die? He had a regard for the name of the Lord Jesus. By regard, I mean a reverence for, uh, a delight in, an esteem of, and a praise of the name of the Lord Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus' name glorified. He wanted all laud and honor to go to God's Son. He knew that Jesus Christ was worthy of worship, worthy of fear, worthy of love and devotion. Paul was not concerned to preserve his name while the name of Jesus was not praised. Paul had a greater regard for the name of Jesus than for his own. In Philippians 3, Paul talked about how he was done with all of his name building. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul said this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus and more of Jesus was Paul's all-consuming passion. It was the whole goal of Paul's life. Paul had a greater regard for Jesus' fame than for his own fame. And Paul was pretty famous among the Gentiles, wasn't he? He, he could have played it safe and stuck on among the Gentile peoples, Gentile Christians, where he was having great success in ministry. But that was not his calling. He had been called to serve the Lord Jesus. 
Did you notice how Paul referred to Jesus there in verse 13? He had a regard for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul could not finally obey the wishes of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He could not finally obey the, the pulls and the tugs of his heart for love and peace and safety and security. He had a new Lord, a new master. And his ultimate regard was for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? All because of what Jesus had done for him. Do you remember what Paul said about his own salvation in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15? He said this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul wasn't pretending. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel, and oversaw the murder of Stephen. Paul was a man who had previously put Christians to death, and now he is willing to be put to death for Christ. Why? Because he received mercy, and because the grace of our Lord overflowed toward him. Paul had a gospel passion because Christ came to the world to save him, a sinner. This is the same Paul who said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, that he was called by God's grace. This is the same Paul who said in Galatians 2.20 that the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. If you long to have a gospel passion like Paul, then the gospel, the good news of Jesus, must arrest you and be applied to you. You must think in such stark terms as Paul did that you are a sinner condemned and unclean before the righteous and holy God. And yet... That you have been so loved by God that He sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And you need to cast your whole hope upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the righteous life that you have not lived, that I have not lived, that nobody else has lived, but that Jesus has lived for sinners. You need to believe that Jesus laid down His life, bearing the punishment on the cross for you and for your sins. That he was paid your wages for working in sin. That he died for you. And not just that, but that three days after his death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners is acceptable in God's sight. And that all who turn from their sin, who admit that yes, we are unclean, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that He can make them clean, will be saved, and spend all eternity with Him in glory. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the gospel. This is the good news, that Jesus lived and loved and laid down His life and was lifted up from the grave for someone like you and someone like me, a sinner. Oh, friends, turn from your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Believe that the cross accomplished everything necessary to rescue you from God's judgment and wrath. And believe that Jesus calls you to take up your cross and follow Him and serve Him with your whole heart and life. This is the good news. This is how you honor Christ. This is how you enthrone Him in your life. This is how you regard Him as our great Savior and Lord. Dear Christian, how high is Christ in your heart? Do you have a regard for the name of Jesus? Such a regard that you're willing to lay down your life for Him.
Do you, like Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, rejoice at the very prospect of being beaten and shamefully treated? Do you rejoice at suffering and being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? Pray that God would give you a heart that regards the name of Christ above all else. Pray for a heart that is like Paul's, a heart that is relentlessly devoted to doing the will of Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 21, verse 14. Do you see where it says that Paul would not be persuaded? In other words, he would not relent to their pleas. He was relentless. Many will seek to persuade you from obeying the Lord Jesus. May God give us a stubborn, sanctified determination to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we go and do His will. That's what happens in verse 15. They, Paul and his merry band of missionaries, got ready and went to Jerusalem. The time for discussing his duty was done. It was time to make a trip to Jerusalem. The regard for Jesus, which fueled his readiness, resolve, and relentless gospel passion, had to give way to action. The brothers who were trying to persuade Paul to stay received Paul's passion as the Lord's will. We see that there in verse 14 through their prayer. Let the will of the Lord be done. They received the Lord's will as superior to theirs. Superior and sovereign to theirs. And it became clear to them that Paul was doing the Lord's will. And I don't think that we should take this as a kind of resignation from Paul's friends. This is not a passive prayer, but rather a positive prayer. Yes, we want the will of the Lord to be done. Let it be done. They're praying what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Because God's will is what is best. Their prayer echoes that of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane too, doesn't it? Remember what Jesus prayed in Matthew 26? Not once, but twice Jesus prayed, Your will be done. What Jesus taught his disciples to pray... He prayed and lived it too for our very salvation. It was his life's ambition to do his Father's will. And that prayer for the Lord Jesus, your will be done, was an embrace of his mission to give his life for sinners. We learn from Jesus. We learn from these saints. We learn from Paul that it's best actually to receive God's will and not resist it. Why? Because God knows best. He sees all. He knows all. God is working all things together for our good and for His glory. Because in all of His providences, God is preparing us for glory. The saints in Caesarea, they received the Lord's will. And the saints in Jerusalem, you see there, they received Paul warmly. The conclusion of Paul's tumultuous journey to Jerusalem takes place there in verse 17. And given Paul's journey to Jerusalem has come to a close, so should this sermon. Beloved, from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 17, we have seen that gospel passion carries the name of Jesus to people and places despite pain, prison, or the possibility of being put in the grave. There will never be gospel people or gospel places without gospel passion. There will never be gospel people or gospel places without gospel passion. Do you have such a passion? You have a heart of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for you. Are you ready 
not only to live for Jesus, but to die for Him too. What is your aim in life? To hold off the grave or to honor the name of the Lord Jesus? To hoard the riches of this world or to help other, others know the riches of Christ? May God give us the same readiness, resolve, and regard that Paul had for Christ so that we too might be useful in making His name known among the nations. Let's pray to that end now together. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.